Our text today is the gospel lesson which was just read from John chapter 3. It's a text which is uh, often used, fittingly used, on Trinity Sunday. But of course we're looking at it simply because it's the next passage in our study of the gospel of John. We had looked at Jesus' turning water into wine and clearing the temple in chapter 2. So that brings us to this text. We'll make three points. They're there on the back inside of your bulletin. Born of the Spirit, the Son lifted up, and the love of the Father. So first, born of the Spirit. So the context here is that at the end of John chapter 2, we're told that many believed in Jesus because of the signs or the works which he did. And yet, there's clearly something defective or at least imperfect, something less than saving faith is at play in this kind of belief. Right? We read at the end of chapter 2 that Jesus did not commit himself to them, to these believers. And the reason he didn't commit himself to them is the text says he knew all men and he knew what was in man. So there's a certain kind of sober realism Jesus has about human nature. He's doing signs, people are believing, but Jesus isn't believing in their believing. And it's with that background, that belief based on signs and the nature of human beings who believe in that manner, that we read in chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus is a Pharisee, which means he's a good Torah-observing Jew. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. And we're told later in this text, if you look down, you can see it in verse 10, that he is not a teacher of Israel. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So in a sense, he speaks for the Sanhedrin. He's not just a teacher, he's a certain master of theology. And so this is a man of some learning. It's a man of some public notoriety. It's a man who could be addressed as the teacher of Israel. And Nicodemus calls Jesus rabbi. And he says, we know you're a teacher sent from God for, for no one who does the signs that you're doing, you know, could do them if God were not with him. So again, you see this connection. Nicodemus says, there's this connection. You're doing these miracles, and that must be connected to your, your mission, your divine teaching mission. But this is a superficial faith. Right? Nicodemus, he doesn't yet grasp who Jesus is. And throughout the Gospel of John, really from beginning to end, the issue is consistently, who is this one? Who is this person? On the other hand, we can say some things for Nicodemus. I mean, he's lacking in understanding, some. But he isn't blinded by prejudice, either. Right? He's a complex character here. Nevertheless, the poor guy does not quite know what he's wading into here. Right? For him, this is simply a discussion between two rabbis. He wants to address the evidence about who Jesus is based on the signs he's seen, presumably evaluated according to some criteria that Nicodemus himself will set up. 
Now, if you're familiar with Jesus, you can guess that he will have none of this. Right? He's going to immediately and radically change the nature of the conversation, which is what he does here. He does that often. He says in verse 3 solemnly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or born from above. Born again is most likely equivalent to born from above. This is the reality spoken of in Titus, which was our New Testament lesson this morning. Titus speaks of it as being regenerated. Right? You're generated once. Regeneration means born anew, born again, born from above. And so Jesus is going... Now, this is very familiar language to us. I realize the passage, everyone knows the passage. It's a famous conversation. But I don't want you to miss that Jesus is going right for the jugular with this man. In other words, he's saying something like this to Nicodemus. Deducing that I'm a teacher from God because of the signs is woefully inadequate. And being a devout adherent of the law is inadequate. And being a respected teacher is utterly impotent in the face of what man or human beings are. Nicodemus. Being circumcised, being a member of the covenant, being a good churchgoer, being a man of high caliber, being a man of gifts, being a man of knowledge, will not save you, Nicodemus. I mean, Nicodemus has good standing. He's a covenant member. What is required, Jesus says, given the human condition, is nothing less radical than a new birth. Like the totality of your human existence needs renovation. Right? When people say that to you, you're likely to maybe get your back up a little bit. The totality of your human existence needs renovation. Nicodemus. This is one of the good guys in Israel. Right, that, you know what that means? It means we're not born right the first time. You ever see those bumper stickers, born right the first time? People hostile to the idea of being born again. Clearly, we're not born right the first time. Right? There's a lot of cultural chatter about who's born this way and who's born that way, and are people born this way and are they born that way? Well, in this sense, we're all the same. We're all born needing to be reborn, regenerated. This is not a hatred of human beings on God's part. This is not a destruction of human nature. But it is its healing, its reorientation, its purification, and its renewal. This is how God shows his love for human beings and for human nature. He doesn't say, hey, that's the way you were born. You can't help it. So this is a radical phrase, but it has great cultural resonance in the situation we're in. By the way, it's also democratic. It's leveling, right? There's no person who needs to be reborn more than me or you, right? There's no nature that's especially in need of renovation, whereas our natures are only in need of some touch-up work. This is a magnificent thing to be able to say to the world, yes, you have to be renewed in the totality of your existence. And for you, that's going to mean Crucifixion with Jesus and resurrection with Jesus. Exactly what it means for me and for every other follower of Jesus Christ. And without such a rebirth, the Lord says, you can't even see 
the kingdom of God, God's dynamic reign in the midst of his people. This would have been odd to Nicodemus too, by the way, because first century Jews thought of the kingdom almost exclusively as a future reality. There'd be some future age and the righteous would be raised and the righteous would reign in that age. Here Jesus speaks of the kingdom as something to be entered here and now. And one which it seems Nicodemus isn't fit to enter. And you can see in the text in verse 4 that Nicodemus is bewildered. You can sympathize with him. He's kind of disoriented. He takes Jesus literally. How can a man be born when he's old? Now, again, we're so used to this phraseology, this born-again phraseology, we think, wow, this seems like a silly question. But if you're the first person in history to hear it from the lips of Jesus, right, you're going to think, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. So it's a legitimate question, really. He says you can't enter a second time into your mother's womb and be born, can you? I mean, he's not mocking Jesus. He's just saying, what, what are you talking about? The concept is so strange, he has no tools to grasp it. I mean, the most he could think is maybe a convert from paganism to Judaism, a proselyte. We could speak of them as being washed or born anew, perhaps. But, but how could one who's born a Jew need new birth? We, are we not the chosen people of God? So Jesus, realizing he doesn't get it, kind of repeats himself in verse 5. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Now you can see this is probably not going to help. Being born of water and the Spirit is not a reference to Christian baptism. This is is like the first year of Jesus' ministry. There There are no Christian baptisms. Nicodemus would have no idea what that meant. It's a way of saying you need to be cleansed or washed by the water of the Holy Spirit. And the key background comes from Ezekiel 36. There's a lot of other background texts, but this is a key one. In Ezekiel 36, the prophet says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from the filthiness of your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So the prophet sees the coming of the new covenant, the coming of the kingdom, in terms of water and the spirit. So this is in Nicodemus' Bible, is what Jesus is trying to say. Right? The restoration of Israel means they need to be washed by the spirit and cleansed and made new. That's rebirth in the water and in the spirit. Again, it should not be read as a despising of human nature, right? We do not despise men when we tell them they need to be born again. We do not despise what comes, how human beings are born naturally. We just simply say, if you want to flourish, right, if you want your nature to come forth in splendor and glory, you're going to need a washing and a cleansing and a renewal, a rebirth in Christ. So, this is utterly necessary We see this in verse 6. Jesus says to him, flesh gives birth to flesh. Now, in John's gospel, flesh just means, normally it means normal human weakness. Normal human frailty. Flesh can give you good genes. And it can give you nice social connections. And a host of other gifts. 
but it's still flesh. It pertains only to this fallen age. It cannot bring the the rebirth necessary for the kingdom. So it's kind of stark. Jesus is saying, look, Nicodemus, there's no evolution. There's no natural way of passing from the way you were born to the way you need to be to enter the kingdom. There's no way of getting by any human ingenuity or work from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the spirit. Now, if you're Nicodemus, this is not comforting. Right? Look at the end of verse 6. It says, the spirit gives birth to spirit. Jesus is saying something like this. Like gives birth to like. And only the spirit, who is himself the coming of the power of the age to come, only the spirit can bring the kingdom. Right? The Holy Spirit is the kingdom of God coming into time. Right? What does Paul say? He says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so he tells Nicodemus he shouldn't marvel or be surprised about what he has said. Now, clearly, this means Nicodemus was marveling, and he was surprised. But Jesus doesn't think he should have been surprised. We'll come back to this. He continues, though, discoursing about the Spirit. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You can't tell where it's coming from or where it's going. Right? The wind is ungraspable, unpredictable. You know, maybe with really sophisticated supercomputers, you can model it. The wind is, is, it, it lacks a certain kind of basic pattern, Right? So it slips through your hands. He says, so it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So the Spirit's work is sovereign and free and ungraspable. The Spirit can't be manipulated. You can't follow a series of steps to produce a revival. I pastored in Tennessee. Let me tell you, you see some strange things down there. You'll often see a sign on a church that says, Revival next Thursday night. And I'm thinking, well, I wonder if anyone's told the Holy Spirit this. You know, because you don't, there's no practice series of steps. There have been preachers in the history of church who think if you, follow, if you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, you'll get the Spirit to show up. The Spirit can't be manipulated, can't be controlled, and can't be turned into a commodity cannot be chaperoned or evoked as if God were our errand boy. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. It's hidden and mysterious like the wind. Yes, we see the effects of the Spirit. They're unmistakable and they're evident because he creates a people raised from the dead, reborn in the life of the kingdom. So now Nicodemus has another question. How can this be? I didn't get the born-again part. I don't get the Spirit part. It's it's as if he's asking about the dynamics. Now, I want you to think about the conundrum here, if you follow Jesus' language. I, Nicodemus, he could be thinking this way, I must, must, I must be born again. Or I cannot, I cannot enter the kingdom. Yet the spirit by which I am to be born again is mysterious and ungraspable as the wind in his workings. No wonder he says, 
how can these things be? Notice the tension Jesus sets up. You must be born again, and the spirit by which we mu- you, you can be born again is not at your disposal. That's the Reformed faith, by the way. You can, you can get all of the Reformed doctrine of salvation from that. You're in need of total renovation. You're responsible to be totally renovated. And the spirit which totally renovates you is not under your control. And so Jesus says to the poor Nicodemus, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things? Right, he doesn't. This is tough love. Um, Jesus thinks Nicodemus should have grasped the significance. How does Jesus think that Nicodemus should know this? Well, the answer quite simply is, you've got this big fat set of 39 books called the Old Testament and you're misreading it. Jesus doesn't think that Nicodemus should have some secret knowledge. He thinks he should have grasped the significance of all the washings and all the purifications in the Old Testament. He should have understood the Ezekiel 36 text, which I just alluded to here. He should have understood from Ezekiel 37, where you have the, the, the valley of dry bones and the spirit comes like wind and quickens it, that Israel needs to undergo death and resurrection. He should have understood that salvation is always by water from the Noahic flood account, or from the crossing of the Red Sea. This is, this is quite a demand Jesus is making. Right? He doesn't make this demand, I think, even of his disciples, or of the average person he runs into. But this guy's the theologian of Israel. And Jesus is saying, you should have understood this. And Jesus assures him in verse 11, that he is not offering, Jesus is not offering a rabbinical opinion. You can see that language there. Jesus doesn't speculate. He does not footnote authorities. He's his own authority. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we've seen. And so Nicodemus and his his colleagues are rejecting this authoritative testimony. Do you know what that means? That means Jesus thinks that Nicodemus' ignorance is culpable. We speak of what we know, and you do not receive our testimony. Now the conversation is about the depths of Nicodemus' soul. This is not going the way he wants it to go. Jesus is is not saying to him, look, there's a few things you don't understand. I can explain them to you. Give me about five minutes with the whiteboard, and I'll give you some basic ideas here about the new covenant. It's like, you should know this, and you're culpable for not knowing this, and you're going to miss out on the kingdom of God and entering it. And then Jesus, this is like a little salt from a teacher to a student who he thinks should do better. If I spoke to you of earthly things you don't believe, how will you believe if I start speaking to you of heavenly things? Like, I'm just getting started, Nicodemus. This born again of the Spirit, it's just earthly stuff. It's elementary stuff. It's Old Testament theology 101. You have no idea about this? The poor guy. So, in other words, being born of the Spirit is just the entry point into the kingdom. Jesus has a lot of other things to show us. So that's the work of the Spirit. The second point is the Son lifted up. He says in verse 13, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, even the Son of Man. By the way, this, this passage, this verse, verse 13, is cryptic to New Testament scholars even today. You can imagine what Nicodemus would have made of it. 
The point seems to be there's no ascent to heaven, no being lifted up except by way of descent. But again, Nicodemus has no doctrine of the incarnation or of the ascension. Anyway, Jesus is using this to shift to the work of the Son. And then he gives us this allusion to the incident in Numbers 21, which was our Old Testament lesson. The Israelites who were bitten by serpents look to the bronze serpent that Moses made. Whoever looks to it is healed. And Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Notice the the must again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. There's two musts here, right? You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. This speaks of Jesus' being lifted up on the cross. This is a magnificent thing. It's very clear in John's gospel. The cross for John is a throne, a lifting up, an exaltation of Jesus, a place of his glory and triumph. He ascends to his heavenly glory by first being lifted onto the cross, and then he's lifted into the ascension. So Jesus says, whoever believes on this lifted up Son of Man, will have everlasting life. So, you must be born again. And you must be born of the Spirit who moves as He wills and when He wills and where He wills. And nevertheless, there's a duty placed on all people. An obligation. You must believe in the Son of Man who's been lifted up on the cross. Jesus places an obligation. There's no mysterious being born from above by the Spirit without the atoning death of the Son received by faith. So if you're talking to a person about this, you can say, you can say look, don't worry about the Spirit. You can't grasp that. Here's the gospel. Trust, believe, look to Jesus lifted up on the cross. And if your heart turns to him and you trust him and you believe him, you can, you can then trust that the Spirit has moved you to do that and that you're born again. But the point is, look to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross. And the Spirit will mysteriously give you the ability to do that in faith and in trust and in love. And finally in the text then, verse 16 tells us that all of this, all of this stems from the great love of the Father. Right? This is the, this is the deep root, the wellspring, the source of the new birth. Right? John 3.16, everyone knows it. Martin Luther called this verse the gospel in miniature. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or in the NIV, his one and only son. Notice how Jesus has kind of moved backwards in this text. He starts from rebirth in the spirit, goes to his atoning work, and then he leads back to the magnificent love of the Father. He goes spirit, son, father. He's tracing your salvation back to its source. God, this God, the Father, so loved. That little so is important. It means that God loved you and he loved the world beyond degree. He didn't just love the world. He so loved the world. Sounds like, you know, this is the way millennials talk, you know. But it's a different kind of so. God so loved the world. He loved the full extent, the sinful, rebellious world and all of its mangled glory. He loves it. And and this love of God the Father is a generous 
outgoing love. He gives. God so loved the world that he gave. Right? This is this, these two words, he gave, this is the greatest action in Holy Scripture, summed up in two words. This God gave. And not only does this love provide, give the sacrifice, it provides the dearest, John says, or the most precious sacrifice, his one and only, his unique, his only begotten son. Right? This is an echo of that dreadful, trembling story in Genesis 22, where Abraham ascends the mountain to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Except here, the son gets no stay of execution. And so this gift, as paradoxical as it may seem, this gift costs God something. And this love, then, this love of the Father, provides for us and for all men the greatest opportunity. Right? Whosoever, the most universal and the grandest opportunity set before human beings. Whosoever believes in him. And then you get the greatest promise, the greatest assurance shall have everlasting life. That's the life of the kingdom. It's the life which we can taste now, which we taste fully in the age to come. It's the life of God himself. God loves the world. This should allay any fears that saying a person needs to be born again is somehow an attack on human nature. The God who says that is the God who loves the world. And he wills its salvation. You see this in verse 17. For God the Father didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Right? The design of the incarnation and the atonement are to save the world through him. So, you can see the outline of the Trinity, right? The Father, in infinite love, gives up the Son. The Son in agony is lifted up on the cross. And you who look to him in faith, are gloriously born from above, resurrected by the Spirit. This is the miracle that Nicodemus failed to grasp. And nothing, beloved, can substitute for it. Not covenant membership, not wholesome living, not learning, not service. It is, I think, really a shame that the phrase born again has accumulated so much baggage. Some of you can remember back into the 70s and 80s, this phrase was everywhere. Right? When President Carter said he was born again, there were born again businesses, there were, there were, there were born again everything. Right? And so, you know, and then it, so it acquired a sort of um, life of its own. Often, it's sometimes it seems like all it means is some sort of, I've had some sort of zany religious experience. Or it's some sort of metaphor for I had some sort of transforming experience. That's not what's going on here. Right? The term has become um, kind of domesticated, not, not very useful. But it's a potent image. And it's shocking, right? It's a shocking claim. We should allow ourselves to be shocked by this, even questioned by the demand. 
You know, one of the ways I know that we're not shocked by it is because I listen to current cultural debates about if, if a person was born this way or a person was born that way and nature versus nurture. And no one ever says, look, we're all in the same boat. We all need total rebirth. The way we're born is not sufficient. It doesn't matter what your sexual inclination is. We are all needing the healing, regenerating renewal of our humanity in Jesus Christ. And this born-again image goes to the heart of a lot of these debates. Jesus is asking all of us the same thing. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. There are no selves that are more damaged or less damaged with respect to the radicalness of this demand. It's a shocking image, regeneration, resurrection, life from the dead, nothing less is needed, Jesus says, than this to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not for nice, public, civic Christian people. It's for dead people who are raised from the dead by the sovereign spirit of the triune God. And so he says to Nicodemus, you've misunderstood this. You've turned the whole Old Testament into some kind of religiosity. But our salvation, your salvation, is the undivided work of the triune God. It flows from the infinite love of the Father. It's wrought by the atoning cross of the Son. And it becomes ours. Ours by the quickening work of the Spirit. Look to the Son. Lift it up on the cross and live. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.